1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday.
0: Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.
1: You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser with you. Well, as we often do at the end of the week, we want to check in with our go-to doc, and that is Dr. Ian Lustbader. He works over at NYU's Langone Medical Center and has really been a consistent voice for us in keeping us honest, helping us understand what's happening on the front lines, but also the broader picture of the virus. It feels like this is a week, Carol, where we could lose sight of the medical piece of this as yeah. we get caught up in a lot of the, rightly, a lot of the social issues that we're facing and also a market trying to make up its mind and making some wild swings. Uh, so, Ian... Keep us honest. Do you play play your part that we have set for you? Which is where are we when it comes to this virus? Because some of the data out there are troubling.
2: Yeah, no, no question. We're certainly not through uh, COVID nineteen by by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, For sure, we're certainly seeing more uh, outbreaks in in uh, in the southern states, Florida, Texas, California. But we're also seeing an interesting what I call post COVID syndrome uh, in patients uh, and, and healthcare workers uh, that I see in my practice.
0: What is that? Meaning what? Yeah. Well,
2: I think COVID-19 has really affected people. uh, And I mean, both patients and the healthcare workers, both physically and emotionally. Mm. Um, I, I think there really is a PTSD, uh, element that is not just uh, emotional by any means, certainly the patients have residual physical symptoms, uh, more so in the hospitalized patients and people who've made it out of the ICUs, but even the patients who've had relatively uh, mild cases, uh, and these are some colleagues and and friends as well as patients, uh, I think it's changed them. Uh, You know, from the healthcare worker point of view, uh, I think this is the first time in a long time uh, that that the doctors and nurses, healthcare workers, have felt you know vulnerable, uh, you know with PPEs, are they adequately protected? Uh, it's hard enough to take care of patients, no less the patient being a risk to you. And I think we have to go back maybe to HIV or even before, where where the healthcare worker was really under that degree of stress, and I think that has stayed with him, and it still is there every time you put on a mask before you see a patient every time you put on a face shield or a gown, you know, you always, uh, the reason you're doing that is because that patient potentially can hurt you. So I think that's very traumatic. And I think also the lack of treatment or ineffective treatment has affected uh, the healthcare worker. Uh, You know, it's a very humbling experience to have people come in and you're used to offering state-of-the-art care, you know, and we have studies and, and a variety of approaches, but really no cure. And so I think that's been certainly traumatic for doctor and patient. And the patients are coming into the office with a variety of of symptoms as well, both physical and psychologic, uh, more anxiety. A lot of patients have chronic fatigue. We're not really exactly sure, you know, what that's about. We know the virus affects many organs, you know, liver, kidney, brain, strokes, and so forth. Many of them have ongoing either chest pain or shortness of breath. Hmm. Uh, after the lung infection, we think some of that may be scarring. Many of them have abnormal labs, you know, elevated liver function tests, clotting tests, kidney abnormalities, memory issues, or residual strokes. So I think we're really just learning to deal with and try and understand a lot of uh, not only the symptoms but lab abnormalities after these patients have left the hospital or so-called, you know, have recovered. So it's a lot of challenges, I think, that we are uh, all uh, still facing and not out of the woods yet.
0: Well, and I think it reminds us, and I feel like, I know, Ian, you've said this to us many times, like we don't really totally still understand this virus, right? We're still in the thick of it. And, you know, we're still learning about the impact, not just while you have it or while you're being treated um, for it, but afterwards, longer term. And and I'm curious about the impact on patients. Is it older patients, all kinds of patients?
2: Uh, there's no question that it follows the statistics that mm-hmm. that older patients, older men uh, certainly, uh, but we see women as well, uh, and a few young people as well who who have survived. They have really sort of a near a near death experience, and although they're grateful, I think they're also. Um, Uh, They're changed, you know. There, it's anxiety provoking. Not to mention when they speak to the doctors and say, you know, what's my prognosis or how? Why are my liver tests elevated? You know, we have to say, well, we're really following this because it's a a new entity in in many ways. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that, and I think it's it's probably a little bit scary for someone to hear from their doctor. You know, I really don't know, Um, and and that's not that's certainly not something we're used to hearing, especially given the quality of care that we're used to in, in a place like well, New York City.
0: I also think, you know, you think about, okay, as, especially as the world reopens, you know, you don't want to get the virus for virus sake, but if you also understand that there is maybe longer term implications on your physical health, um, Dr. Lesbader, you know, it's got to make you think twice about kind of getting back into normal society.
2: Correct. You know, we do think, for example, patients who have high antibody levels certainly should be protected Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think uh, what we're seeing now in some of the southern states, not to point fingers necessarily, or the country in general, I think people are are lowering their guard. At summer, people want out. They are not necessarily, um, you know, following distancing guidelines and masks and so forth because that's a pain. And I think uh, we need to talk about uh, and adjust to a new normal until really we get better treatment and vaccine that is effective we know over 100 companies are working on vaccines we really don't have any results yet right. uh, as to how effective they are uh, and how long those antibodies will last uh, assuming that we get neutralizing antibodies so there's still a lot of questions
1: right and i think right.
2: people need to be aware of that
1: All right. So, Ian, uh, Dr. Ian Lesbader, hang with us for a few minutes. We're going to continue this conversation after we do some news. Uh, A lot to talk about, especially as we're in the midst of reopening uh, New York City. Also want to hear some practical advice, as he always gives us as we go through the weekend. Our guest at
0: this hour is Dr. Ian Lasbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, uh, once again on the phone in New York City. Hey, Ian, one thing I wanted to follow up on, you said we need to adjust to the new normal. What is the new normal? Because I know you have been among those who said, you know, we do ultimately have to get back to work, right? You know, necessary surgery and treatments are not happening as everybody stays home. But I do wonder, as you watch what seems to be cases spiking in other states, is you know, how do we embrace a new normal, and is it are – we, are we seeing evidence that maybe it's too soon in terms of some of the reopenings?
2: You know, I think that's a great question, uh, Carol, as always, and uh, Jason uh, as well. Always great to have, uh, you know, this focused interest. So I think uh, we're definitely seeing a spike in cases. We don't really know the details specifically of why in Florida, Texas, Arizona – uh, there may be different uh, guidelines. People may not be following it as closely. I must say in New York, uh, the streets were empty for months. Uh, mm-hmm. People stayed inside. and They suffered some psychological uh, trauma due to that. But everyone really followed uh, the social isolation. And uh, unfortunately, that's what needs to happen uh, until cases really drop and uh, cases are rising. So I think there are some principles uh, is to the new normal, you know, one thing uh, would be, you know, outside versus inside. Uh, a number of patients say they'd like to get together with family who they haven't seen for a while. You know, in my, is it safe? And nothing is completely safe, but certainly sitting outside, having 10 feet of distance, you know, would make a lot of sense. Try to avoid inside meetings, uh, even in the same family, but uh, that's obviously harder to do. Uh, avoid areas of, you know, sort of loud speaking or singing choirs. You know, there was that report of many uh, people being infected from from the choir, shouting ball fields, which are obviously still closed. So, you know, speak in moderate voice. And really masks uh, would be very important. Uh, ideally N95 masks, which are unfortunately hard to get prior to the crisis. They were easily available. Uh, those really are the best. Masks with a tighter seal or surgical masks. You know, have some openings. You could certainly tape that. I think that's a little less critical if you're outside, but certainly if you're visiting with friends or people you don't know. Even a cloth or silk mask that has a few layers would be helpful. Some people say a face shield. Uh, and you can get these on the Internet, a plastic face shield, or you can even make them, you know, this sort of clear uh
0: So, Ian, so as we all go back to work, you know, and it feels like we heard um, Goldman Sachs talk about bringing back workers soon, you know, the Wall Street community. You know, when we're in offices, obviously we have to do social distancing. What kind of masks are the smart things for us to be wearing? It sounds like we need to have masks that are, you know, maybe more contained than a cloth mask.
2: Ideally, yeah. So the surgical masks, and uh, the cloth masks, as, as we've said, have openings in them. The surgical masks, Of openings as well. N95s are really the best. But even in our medical office, our big medical group, uh, all the doctors, all the patients are wearing masks. You're talking to people through the masks. Uh, Basically, unless someone is in their own office uh, eating or drinking, uh, people wear masks. And I think, you know, the the days of people screaming at each other uh, in the hallways or in a busy uh, open cubicle Uh, will really have to be moderated, you know, shouting and and aerosolizing potential virus particles are not a great idea. But you can.
1: That's bad news for Wall Street traders. I'm just going to say they're (laughs) a big part of our audience, Ian, and uh, that is not good news for them to hear.
2: Well, I would say if you're going to shout or if you're going to be doing that, I think masks would would reduce the amount of droplets. So and that's really all you can do is reduce risk. You cannot eliminate risk. Yeah. And I think people just need to be mindful of ways to reduce risk.
0: So what uh, do you. Which,
2: you know, as we said, masks and so forth.
0: I don't mean to put you on the spot, but one of the things that's been going around a big time, certainly in our universe and on Twitter, you know, is about Larry Kudlow of the Trump administration declaring that a second wave of the virus has not descended upon the U.S. and says there's no emergency. There is no second wave. Um, and he goes on. I just got about 40 seconds here. I, it, I don't, it, it does that help or hurt it? Well, I,
2: okay. I think we're still seeing the first wave. I don't think we've gone through the first wave. Typically, we think of a second wave as re reinfections, for example, in New York City, where the cases dropped, if they begin to rise again. Mm. But I'm not sure it's a critical definition. The bottom line is we haven't vanquished the virus. Yeah. We don't have a vaccine and we don't have effective treatment or prevention, prophylactic medicine, like hydroxychloroquine. So I think it's semantics, and I think we have farther to go. We're inching up on that, and we have to be careful whether we define it as the first wave or second wave. Right. Uh, There may be other waves if the virus mutates, so I think we do need to alter behavior. That's really right. the challenge for people.
0: Yeah. I have to say, Jason and I always have a conversation with you, and we're like, we can't believe how much ground we covered. So thank you so much, because it was all the things that we were hoping to do. Uh, Ian, have a great and safe weekend. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. On the phone in New York City, it was like, I checked off all my lists.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And listen, when you are able to check off your list, that, that's a happy Carol Masser. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Well, one of the stories you have to read or this weekend you can actually listen to, mm-hmm. uh, it is in the magazine this week and you won't be able to put it down or you won't be able to take your AirPods out. Uh, it's all about a cruise ship And the headline says it all: Life and Death on the Zandam Holland America's Pariah Ship. Michael Smith, he was one of the writers on it, Projects and Investigations Reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us on the phone from Miami. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, he joins us from Brooklyn. Joel, this was one of these stories that you flagged to us early on. We love getting an inside look from, you know, the guy in charge. And you, you sold this one very well, and you didn't even need to sell it, because once you're into it, you cannot get out in many ways. Set it up for us.
3: So the, the big story here is obviously that once the pandemic hit, um, there were a few places in the world that were uniquely exposed, and the cruise industry was one of them. And Business Week did a cover story about Carnival specifically um, a couple months ago. But one of the stories that um, also emerged and that Mike and a couple other reporters worked on was the story about uh, Holland America, which is actually a subsidiary of Carnival, which had a ship um, that was leaving basically from Buenos Aires and was going to do like a multi-week um, uh, tour around south america and it basically pulled out of harbor right as the cdc was escalating uh it's it's sort of rhetoric about how americans specifically should not get on cruise ships and it it basically the virus hit the ship after it had already basically left and dozens of people got sick um at least three died and mike and drake bennett and uh, uh, Juan, who was another writer on this story, has spent basically weeks talking to passengers and crew members who basically were on what, what really was like a, a, the most miserable journey imaginable. Um, and, and, Mike, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Like, what, what did you. What did you guys discover in your re- reporting process on this one?
4: One thing we discovered is that um, how – Quickly and ferociously, this this virus uh, COVID nineteen can spread and sort of thrive in a cruise ship environment. And we've seen repeated examples of that. And this one was was really stark, uh, striking, if you will, uh, in in just how the the disease spread so quickly, and per, perhaps more importantly, how seemingly unprepared the the cruise line appeared to be in reacting to it. Despite having had the experience of going through two major, you know, the two the two other really well-known uh, sort of COVID epidemics on ships involving two Princess brand ships, which are also the same cruise line, Holland America and Carnival. So that, those were like the most the most striking things that we discovered in our reporting.
0: And what's interesting, Mike, is that this is an industry, you know, that understands how any kind of virus can quickly go through the ship right i mean they've got little pieces of paper so that when you leave the bathroom you can use that to open up the door like they they, there's stuff all over the place so that's just kind of normal operations and so it is kind of interesting that in in a world that was fighting a pandemic and maybe while it wasn't right in front of them they saw it all around them that there wasn't more precautionary steps taken earlier
4: yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, the cruise industry, especially in the last uh, decade or so, has had, uh, you know, made enormous inroads in fighting the most common illnesses to spread on cruise ships, which is uh, intestinal, uh, gastrointestinal viruses, most more specifically the norovirus it's called. Um, and they've learned how to sort of react to and try to contain outbreaks of that virus. But the difference here is that norovirus almost never kills you uh you know it's it's something that you get sick for a few days but if you stay away from people you're not going to spread it right. and that's and that's that's the end of it but they just weren't ready uh and still aren't ready it appears to deal with a, vi- a deadly virus like this that thrives especially among the population that you see on many, many cruise ships, which are elderly people, um, many of whom already have other, other, other medical issues that, that that this virus really.
3: Perfect segue. uh, Perfect segue there, Mike, for, for my question, which is, you know, I think the big feat here for, for folks who are going to be reading this and or listening to it over the weekend is, is like, we basically put you on the ship and you get a sense of what it's like to be a passenger uh Mike wh- who were some of the characters that really stuck with you in your reporting
4: yeah it's really striking to actually talk to the people who lived through this uh passengers and people who worked on the ship which is just a dramatic um and you just get the sense that uh this you know everything was normal typical cruise what you would expect on a cruise and then it wasn't and it be- and it went from being uh, just pretending to be every, like everything's normal, people are coughing here and there, and then all of a sudden you're stuck in your cabin for a couple of weeks and you have this just fear of this virus closing in on you uh, and coming to get you, even inside your your, your your little room with a sealed window looking out at the beautiful uh, Pacific and Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, g- talking to people, uh, and the people I talk to they are just sort of normal, um, you know, people that, this was like the cruise of the lifetime because it was a more sort of higher end cruise, so a longer cruise, you know, very, very exotic going to really, really beautiful parts of the world, seeing things that most people will never see. It just, it, it they, they got on that ship uh, thinking they were, uh, you know, they were, they were basically checking off the biggest thing on their bucket list. Um, and everything seemed to go well. And then it didn't. And, and it just became more and more desperate as, you know, as as ports refused to let them dock. And then, you know, the, this thing just sort of got out of hand uh, in, in many, many ways. And so when you talk to the victims, if you will, the people who were stuck in their cabins and, and many of them got sick and died, it's just uh, it's just heartbreaking to hear the tremendous uh, psychosis that that sort of spread across the ship that was really, I mean, really, really real. You know, and, and we're talking about life and death. Yeah. And There was no escape. You know, that's kind of the main thing. No escape.
0: Well, that's the thing, right? To to you know, repeatedly being saying you can't dock here, you can't dock here, here, and you can't get off. Um, You just you can't even get your head around that. Uh, Well, and
1: even some of the examples too, and it's fairly high up in the story of you know people who thought they were going to have a chance to get off and then weren't able to. I mean, that is really uh, it's difficult. It's it's a tough read in many ways, but you really need to read it to understand some of the contours of how this virus works, and also from an economic and a business perspective, Huge. you know what's going on uh, in that industry. A terrific piece of reporting. Michael Smith, thank you so much. Uh, really excellent, excellent work. Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek. Check out that story. It's in the magazine. You can also listen to it on our podcast feed this weekend. Michael joined us from Miami. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joined us from Brooklyn. It's a great read, a riveting read. We've been talking a lot and we need to keep talking about the most vulnerable in our population. And certainly among the most vulnerable when it comes to the effect of the virus are the elderly. And one of the companies that's doing a lot of work on that front is Care Academy. And we are delighted to have the co-founder and the CEO of Care Academy, Helen Adioson. She joins us on the phone from Boston. Helen, really nice to have you with us.
5: Hi, Jason. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, it's good to have you in part because you and your company are working in such a critical area of healthcare right now. We understand that healthcare has been so radically disrupted uh, by the virus, and uh, would love to understand what you're seeing and what your company is doing, and maybe how it has shifted or or seen its business change in light of all of this.
5: Absolutely. Um, this is absolutely a critical time for our whole country, us as a nation, and at Care Academy, I often say that we were not pivoting because of COVID. We were leaning into COVID. Uh, Pre COVID, we, as you mentioned at the very top, uh, we were already seeing a, a large increase of uh, older adults. Um, so, you know, knowing that there's going to be 703 million older adults um, in 20, it, in 2020, and one and a half billion older adults by 2050, with the expectation of aging in place. Um, and so, what COVID did is it exacerbated a lot of the healthcare trends that um, we believe we're gonna see in three to five years, and now that is happening. Um, So we are actually seeing across all of our customers that we serve and their direct care workers, um, what's happening is a a, a greater expectation of people who are going home to recover from COVID, are recovering already from COVID without a discharge. Um, But there's just a huge jump in the number of COVID cases, um, especially among older adults that are happening in the home. And I think for the American consumer, folks are – starting to sort of question um, elder care in the long-term care um, industry and how um, it can better position to the home care setting um, because of COVID. So we actually, uh, as a company, we provide online professional development And upskilling, so really educational supports for uh, the essential workers right now, the direct care workers who are healthcare workers, Um, and uh, within just a relatively short amount of time, we saw eighty-eight thousand views of our COVID-related class that is, you know, still available on our website for anyone um, aside from our customers. So we just saw just a huge increase in demand for folks who wanted to get uh, education and certification. Um, around Mm COVID-19. So, Helen,
0: right, your platform provides that ongoing education for caregivers, and you also support those who own home care companies and agencies. And I'm just curious, you know, coming off the last 13 weeks, coming off the last three weeks, you know, has Mm -hmm. really exposed the inequalities in our society, especially when it comes to things like certainly race and certainly health care. And I do wonder, having had Mm -hmm. two parents um, that – you know we had to pull in at some point you know home health care it's not inexpensive Mm -hmm. and I do wonder Mm -hmm. you know how you think about that and and providing what's going to be really probably a necessary component for for all of us because we're living longer right and getting ailments that require some kind of assistance usually you know how do you address that?
5: That is a, a great and I think a fundamental question um, for our country as we move forward. I was uh, listening as you were talking to Alina earlier. Um, I think by virtue of this very moment, um, things will be impacted forever. Uh, we are already seeing um, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, um, making some very necessary changes to our healthcare infrastructure. And as part of that thinking, that broad view of how do we revision and remake healthcare for the needs of older adults and the needs, our needs moving forward, um, that is something that I think that we have to take into consideration. How do we um, think about reimbursement? Um, prior to COVID, we saw uh, Medicare Advantage uh, programs moving into provide long-term care supports in the home um, as far as private pay. Um, I think systemically we have to look at how we reimburse for home opportunities as well as uh, payment considerations and how we um, make home care a, a place and a prime destination for folks who are entering to healthcare work. Um, those are the two things that I think our country has to think about moving forward.
1: Helen, I just got to ask you, as a follow to that, very briefly, we only have unfortunately about forty-five seconds left. But you know, what's the thing of this crisis that really sticks in terms of how healthcare is delivered, in your estimation?
5: Absolutely, Um, we were already part of an ongoing trend pre-COVID, and now it is absolutely a non-negotiable that the future of healthcare really is in the home. Um, Aside from the larger healthcare providers, we the retailers and everyone positioning um, now. We need to build the infrastructure as a country, um, and our leadership has to really address um, now an exacerbation of this really um, critical moment for our country. So I think it was already going there, and now more than ever, uh, we need to see healthcare as in the home as a, as a yeah. primary feature of healthcare.
1: That's really it. Yeah. I mean, primary versus. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting and important point. Uh, Helen Adioson, thank you so much. Co-founder, CEO of Cure Academy. Joining us on the phone from Boston. we should point out they just raised uh, their Series A funding from some big investors. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. a really important area of healthcare, So I'm glad uh, we were able. I mean, and the numbers that she Cute. described, Carol, and, and as you said, you know, you lived this um, mm-hmm. with your parents. I mean, it's vital to yep. get this right as we go forward.
0: Absolutely. And those workers um, are really just impressive in terms of what they do and how they help you.
1: How about you let me drive? Oh no, no no no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive.
6: Just drive,
1: so just drive baby. It's the question that drives
0: us. This is the drive to the close.
6: That punk to music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for the drive to the close on this Friday. What a week it's been. What a day it's been. I mean, talk about a bit of a bipolar market because we have been down as much as. Um, We've been down about what 49 points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. We've been up 837 points. Right now we're up 445 points. So we're seeing a bit of a swing here, uh, and we see that on all of those major equity averages. Bruce Biddles is back with us, chief investment strategist at Baird, uh, on the phone from Sarasota, Florida. Um, Bruce, what do you make of today's trade alone? We're talking about eh, about a 900-point swing. I mean, I've seen worse, but nonetheless, you so know, we've been kind of all over the place today.
6: Yeah, well, you we had a you know you had a huge day yesterday, and then almost two thousand down points. So yeah. you would expect that the following day, I mean, the volatility just wouldn't just dry up. So, um, but I would say this: we had a big opening on the morning, on this morning, and typically in a down phase of the market after a big break, uh, up mornings are problematic. So it wasn't too surprising that we gave all of that up and, and saw more. And then just under uh, 300 on the S&P, we've started to gain some traction, and it looks like we are right into the close.
1: And so – Put this in context of the last you know month or so, uh, Bruce, because this has been a market that has largely, and you'll see it on the cover if you haven't already, of Bloomberg Business Week this week, this has been a market that has largely shrugged off what is clearly a pretty terrible economy, an economy in recession, talk of a depression, and yet with the exception of yesterday, really, grinding higher and certainly net-net much higher uh, than we were in in March. How do you synthesize it all?
6: Well, you're right about it being surprising. We had a big drop in in March and then April, May, and the first part of June we covered almost all of that, if not all of it. And um, I think the markets, of course, are forward-looking, So, and they're looking for the economy to reopen here gradually into the Second in the second half of the year. There's also, you know, some hopes of, you know, a vaccine or some kind of um, treatment for the, the virus. And just as important, you've had massive um, monetary and fiscal policy thrown at both the stock market and the economy. So I think that accounts for a lot of the gains. Now, the question is, is the market um, forecasting more than the economy can deliver? And, and that might be a possibility here because there are still some challenges ahead. Um, We can certainly see that clearly in the news at national civil unrest here. We still have elevated levels of unemployment and and a lot of jobs are simply not going to come back. And then you have uh, the potential for election year volatility um, in the summertime. So the market may be looking ahead to that. And uh, you have rising tensions with the U.S. and China on trade. So there's still a lot of headwinds here.
0: Yeah, headwinds. The list is long, man. And those are, you know, those are gusts. We're talking about knockdowns. Um, Bruce Biddle, so what do you do in this market environment? Like I kidded with Jason on the sell-off yesterday. I'm like, now's the time to buy. It's 6% cheaper. Um, And I don't mean to be so, you know, You know, not trying to sound careless in terms of how we look at the markets, but I do wonder when you look at this, what kind of moves do you actually take in terms of buying and selling on all of this?
6: Well, I think one of the things that the Fed accomplished with um, getting ahead of the curve, and, and by the way, uh, Powell's been very different than we saw in the past in 2008 and 9, when the Fed was behind the curve. Every time the banks had a problem, they would come in with liquidity. But in the present example, pal has been proactive, so that's been a big help. And I think what that's accomplished is it's given investors a lot of confidence, despite the negative news on the economy and, and what's going on in the, in the daily news. But um, the markets had this big run. We're up over 40% from the, from the lows right. at the top um, before the week. So I suspect we're going to go into some sort of consolidation trading range here. Maybe twenty nine fifty, thirty one fifty would be the re- reward for the next maybe several weeks. But with that said, looking longer term, I think you want to focus on those sectors that are most closely aligned with the economy. Now they had um, nice runs, nice rallies in um, May and early June, and maybe they, they came a little bit too far, too fast. So some of those have pulled back. But what I'm talking about are the industrials, the financials, and the material sectors. And, uh, and of course, uh, I would like to gravitate more toward uh, small caps and mid caps and maybe away from the larger caps, simply because um, the history shows that when you come out of recession, small caps typically take over the leadership, and that can go on for more than a year or more. Now, small caps have been oversold relative to large caps now for quite a while. And so they may be playing catch up here. And I suspect that for maybe the best games will be um, in the second half of
1: this year. All right, Bruce Bittles, thank you so much. Really nice to catch up with you. Uh, Bruce Bittles, of course, chief investment strategist for Bear Jones on the phone from Sarasota. And, you know, as we think about this week, and, you know, Bruce providing some good historical context there, uh, Carol, you, you know, we do think about a week where the the market it feels like from a a sentiment and uh, almost human perspective started to think okay do we have this right do we not have this right how are we feeling about this virus how are we feeling about earnings how are we feeling about all of it
0: well uh, you know as we said and kidded during the week earlier in the week you know wait a minute you know this was a a moment where we had to kind of slow down a little bit we've had quite um a bounce off the market low in late march And so we've kind of gained back most of that lost ground, if not all of it. And, you know, kind of, or most of it. And I think. You know, here we are having conversations about a second wave. You know, Dr. Ian Lusblader of NYU said, wait a minute, we're not even really done with the first wave. And we need to, you know, whether or not how you classify it doesn't matter. We're still not out of the virus. Right. And that's the point. And we will not ultimately be out of the virus until you have treatments, a.k.a. a vaccine. Um, and so we need to remember that. Well, because we don't that.
1: even have therapeutics at this point. You Correct. know, I mean, it's not even this sort of thing. It's like, oh, OK, well, You've if got most the virus, people get it, yeah. yeah. We can uh, we can do that. We've sort of lost track. I think it feels like of the threat around antibody testing. You know, like that has we're not talking about as much anymore. I mean, candidly, part of it is because at a federal level, if I may be so bold, we're we fe- it feels like we sort of moved on. Um, and and y- and you're hearing a lot of that message. And and uh, I worry about that. I do, yeah.
0: and I do worry about it for individuals. Uh, we keep hearing about workers who are not going to you know find jobs when they come back right. to all of this, and that's going to have. A longer term impact on the economy and make it uh, tougher for us to get out of this hole.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.